Hey everybody, Lucas here. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Real Talk Podcast. Before we get on with the show and the meat and potatoes of it as it were, I have to do a quick shout out for the sponsor of today's episode. Today's sponsor is Jordan of A Thousand Elsewhere. Gospel-centric musings, goods, resources, and creative services from and for an intentional Christian lifestyle. Her shop of gospel goods launched in February and introductory pricing ends August 31st. So take advantage of these special introductory prices while you still can. You can learn more at a thousand elsewhere.ca. That's a thousand spelled out as the word elsewhere.ca. A big thanks to her for sponsoring the show and making this whole thing possible. Now, on to today's episode. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Real Talk Podcast. Uh, today, we got another great episode for you, as per usual. Um, you'll notice a different background behind me. I had uh, no short of technical difficulties on this podcast, so uh, my internet gave out at my house, so I'm at a friend's house uh, recording in front of some nice piece of art. So this is uh, this is new. The audio might sound a bit different, but uh, yeah, we're excited to bring you today's episode. Actually, one I've been, we thought about three years ago when we first started this podcast, about doing an episode on church history and more specifically like the Dutch reformed church history um, back to the secession in, in Holland. So uh, today we are joined by Mark Den Hollander um, and we're glad to have him. And he teaches a uh, church history course uh, or a bunch of church history courses at the, uh, the covenant Canadian reformed teachers college. Uh, So welcome Mark. Um, Looking forward to learning a whole lot. Yeah, it's, it's good to be here. I, I need a bit of arm twisting. Uh, I figured there's better experts in church history out there. Uh, but uh, given that it's fairly fresh for me and, I've, and I have some experience teaching it, uh, yeah, I was encouraged to do it anyway. And so I'm, I'm happy to be here and, and share what I know, uh, although there are other experts out there. Hey, well, uh, we're happy to have you. I'm hoping to uh, get a bit of a, a higher level overview of this stuff. Um, I'm sure lots of our older listeners will love the uh, the discussion on everything Holland, but um, hopefully this is edifying for the younger crowd too. Yeah. Uh, yeah, why don't you introduce yourself and how you got into education and you're teaching at the college now, but uh, how'd you end up there? Sure. So um, I've always, I, I was always loved school. I loved uh, Christian education. I grew up with two different elementary schools and then also Christian high school. And so early on already, uh, it was my desire to become a teacher. And so I did study to, to become a teacher. I got a, a Bachelor of Arts in History at York University and then a Bachelor of Education at uh, Brock University in St. Catharines. And uh, from there, by God's providence, I was led to, uh, to Winnipeg uh, to teach at Emmanuel Christian School. I taught there for, for two years in grade four and then uh, moved into uh, vice principalship there and taught some high school courses for a number of years, five years. And then the last seven years that I was there, I was serving as the principal of the K-12 school there. Um, during that time, I got my master's in education, more in the uh, philosophical and historical roots of education. And then, uh, you know, the teacher's college was looking for a faculty instructor. I'd sort of always envisioned that this would be where I'd like to end up. I, I love schools. I love thinking about education and talking about education. Uh, but the time was right for our family to move and uh, to leave, uh, maybe even before people wanted me to leave, which is always a, a wise thing to do. Uh, and so we end up here at the teacher's college. And one of the courses that uh, I was to take over is church history. And I had taught 
church history for a number of years at uh, probably at grade four level and then grade seven, eight level, grade nine and 10 level, and then also later on in grade uh, 12. So I have some experience with different church history, different eras. And so that's been a natural fit. And so I'm, I'm one year under the belt at Teachers College here and very much enjoying it, uh, being busy with thinking about not just church history, but schools in general and covenantal education. Right on. Yeah, that's... Uh... Well, you're definitely qualified. I don't know if you uh, think you're qualified, but you're definitely qualified uh, to speak that's right. about some things. Maybe. I should also mention, of course, that I, I'm, a, I'm a family dad, a family guy. I'm a, I'm a dad. I'm a husband. So I have six children, and we live in Beamsville, where we worship in uh, Vineyard Canadian Reformed Church. Um, so I got kids uh, as old as 12 and as young as six months. And oh, wow. uh, so that's, that's uh, a big part of who I am as well. That keeps you busy on all ends of the world, then. That is the best kind of busy out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's good. Wow. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, so what got you interested in, in church history? Like you say you taught church history in the past, but is it something you always enjoyed teaching or is it something that you, you know, you've enjoyed learning about? So I'm, I'm a history guy. I, I mostly in my undergrad, I did uh, Canadian and American history with some classical stuff in there. It's not really church history at all. So I, uh, you know, when I started teaching high school, we needed somebody to teach church history, and and uh, you only have to be one day ahead of the students, so you learn it as as you go. And uh, there's lots of resources out there. I'd say the resources are old, um, and somewhat dull, and so it takes some work to internalize that and then uh, to share it. So that's sort of where my interest comes from, and and I I enjoy it. Right, and then you did a course specifically on um, the Dutch secession and and this this kind of time period this year. Eh? That's right. So, and that's interesting at the teachers college because we don't have just Canadian reformed students. We have students from several reformed churches. So to, to navigate that course while highlighting where some of those differences between our churches exist has, was really a neat experience to go through with our students. No, that's cool. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that when, once we get into the church history, I'm, I'm also curious about, you know, obviously our Canadian reformed uh, churches, how they came out of uh, and also immigrated into, into Canada, but um it's other denominations as well. Like, you know, what, what all, what all happened in Holland there and, and, you know, what, what other branches did we get out of that? So, um, so what, like history, you're like, you're a history guy. I mean, obviously the history pitch is like, well, if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, why else, like, why is it really something that we should be teaching and learning um, other than, you know, the, the classic adage yeah, I, so I think beyond that is is uh, Psalm seventy eight right is is our theme at uh, the teachers college. Tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And when we think about history, I mean, in some ways, all of history is church history because uh, God is gathering His church from the beginning of the world to its end. And so, all of history exists so that God can do that work. And God is operating on a on a very high high level, uh, and He sees all things and He directs all things for the good of His church. And so, when we tell the story of church history, it's that story of of God and His work of redemption for the good of His church. And and we can trace that that story of church history beyond just the Old and the New Testament to carry on beyond it. We don't have a scripture that goes with it, but it all points to a providential God. And I think. Several times in church history, God sort of uh, lets us see a little peek into how how He preserves His church and how He's using providence to to lead it in certain directions. And so, um, it, it's an incredible story that that 
to helps us to to praise God for who He is and, and what He does for our lives. So it's not just about learning lessons from it, but but standing amazed at a covenant of God who's faithful uh, to His covenant, not just in the Old and New Testament, but still today. Uh, and and that gives us confidence, right? That that uh, He maintains. That antithesis, that that divide between the church and the world, and he continues to in the end. And the church has faced very difficult things. And if we think of the world today, um, you know, we're history's not progressing, we're not getting better, uh, but we're not getting worse either, right? The church history exists as as one time through all all time and space. We've always dealt with the depravity, and and the Lord is faithful and he he maintains his church. And so we don't have to worry about those things. We have we have a whole history to give us confidence uh, that God is good and he'll provide a way through. Right. There's always challenging things and some things seem more challenging. Is it like history is obviously, it's obviously important also for the, those lessons and those, those figures in, in history um, to learn about and to understand the issues that they tackled. Are, are there like some pretty clear, I mean, we'll get into more of the specific issues, but are there like really clear um, examples of issues that they dealt with that we're also dealing with now, or oh, are we absolutely. like living in a different time? Like, no. So like where, where we'll start later on talking about the secession. I mean, that's, that's the fruit of the enlightenment. Well, we're still dealing with the fruits of postmodernism, right? So uh, when the ideas of the world creep into the church over and above God's word, you end up with deformation and then you need reformation to go back to God's word. And that's just a cycle that exists throughout history. And so the same thing exists in the church today is, is when, when the, the wisdom of the world creeps into the church, the church needs a reformation, right? And it's, a, it's when you stay faithful to God's word that you stay faithful. And, and that's a cycle that exists. Uh, the whole Old Testament is basically the exact same cycle. Right, right. Yeah, so... Well, let's just get into it. I want to uh, I want to get into the the history, and we can we can talk about why it all matters too afterwards, because yeah. it's uh, something that you know is good to wrap our mind around why it's important before we kind of oh we got to sell the young people on it, I guess to to keep listening to the episode. But it's something that uh, yeah, it's always you always want to know why why things are like something you should listen to before you you know dive deep into it. So well, yeah. let's uh, yeah, let's get into it. Like. Um, I think probably the best place to start would be like the Reformation and and like just let's briefly work between the Reformation and the as 1500s. I don't even know the dates um, all the way up to the secession. Um, and let's kind of just unpack that a little bit uh, before yeah. we get into like the the nuts and bolts of the secession and, and forward. Yeah. So before I start, so 1517 is typically, I mean, that's Luther, right? And then, uh, you know, the impression I had growing up sometimes is that, you know, God established his church and then stuff happened and thank goodness Luther showed up and ta-da, we had Reformation. Everything was great. We celebrate Reformation Day. Uh, so one of the, one of the, the joys has been to unpack sort of this, this period of time from the early church all the way until 1517, where God didn't forget about his church. Be like, oh, shoot, uh, I should probably reveal the gospel to them again. Uh, but, but there's this right. wonderful storyline that exists all the way through where the Lord is laying the groundwork towards that Reformation. So we can't get into all that there, but that's been one of the things that the new church history curriculum they're working on right now does a really good job of highlighting is all these wonderful, great characters of the or of the church fathers of the medieval years, uh, where it's it highlights God's faithfulness to His church and faithful believers in all different places, despite sort of the the problems of the Roman Catholic Church at the time and some of the false teachings. So. Uh, in in the whole storyline until now, like we we pick little snippets, but at, 
at no point do we not have anything in between, right? So we we have, uh, you know, the 15th, 17th is the Reformation, but that's just the start of sort of the era that we talk about afterwards, right? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So then when we talk about, like, speaking specifically about the Netherlands, uh, 1517 of, of Luther, but it doesn't stay like the famous story you might have grown up with learning about was the printing press and the wonderful change that it does. And, and that's always fascinating because even in a secular world, uh, they talk about the printing press and how it revolutionized everything. And it truly did, right? So uh, one of the questions you sort of had for me was, well, how did we, how did it get to be the Netherlands? Well, um, in the Netherlands, you have, you have Lutheran followers, but a big influence is Calvin. So Calvin, of course, is in Geneva, and he established a seminary there. And the way I always taught it to my students is that the seminary in Geneva is like a, the epicenter, right? So uh, Calvin exists there, and then there's ripples that go out from it. And so students from um, Calvin Seminary go back to the Netherlands as well. And so you have Calvinists show up in the Netherlands in, in all different places, um, and that's how Calvinism shows up there. So in the Netherlands right. itself, in the late 1500s, they're under the control of, of the king of Spain, right? And Spain is, is uh, staunchly Catholic. The whole European history is messy at this point, so we won't get into the weeds of it. But they're, right. they're Catholic. And so the Inquisition actually, the, the, the Inquisition, which persecuted the, the Reformed believers, the Protestant believers, was quite possibly the very worst in the Netherlands. That's where the Reformed believers <laughs> faced the worst persecution uh, at the hands of uh, the Spanish Inquisition, um, which if you're a Monty Python fan, gets into you a yeah. uh, rabbit hole, but we won't go there. Um, <laughs> but uh, so so huge amounts of persecution there. And of course, they would be able to uh, liberate themselves uh, with the help of, of Prince William the Silence, as, as he's known. And uh, through the whole 80 years war, eventually you have the northern Netherlands, the lowlands being liberated and becoming a Protestant country. So that's sort of the in the late 1500s, early 1600s, we end up with a Protestant reformed country in the Netherlands. Right. That's so a lot of that's like a political dynamic, right? Like, I mean, I guess the the, the politics in the in the church, like the church and state were like tied together real hard. Like, I guess yeah, yeah. like Rome was like that. And then everywhere that, you know, yeah, it's we just don't see that now. We're like a well, a lot, I guess, probably some places in the world, but we don't have countries that are like imposing their religious views necessarily on their, their people, um, no, especially like in, the, in the Western whole, world, at least. You have the whole story of Prince William, and they, they need a king, and so they're like, oh, we should get the guy from France to do it, and he doesn't want to do it. Oh, maybe the Queen of England, she should be, and you get there's there's like real complicated history in terms of before you actually get the Netherlands. Uh, one of the interesting things in the Netherlands is though is that when they do establish a country, they um, they do grant some freedom to the Catholics there as well, um, but not not in, let's say in a total freedom. Like it's not like a wonderful blessed peace, uh, but there is right. some allowance for it. But there was wild like in the Netherlands, you have fighting between the Catholics. Um, the Anabaptists and the um, and, and the and the Calvinists and, and and there was like like real fighting and like killing each other. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of bloody wars going on in that time. That's right. Like, and nobody has nobody has clean hands. And I think that's important in church history that we don't uh, portray it that way either. Like nobody, you know, it's it's a story of God uh, gathering His church. Uh, through weak and sinful people, right? There's no, you know, we talk about heroes of the faith and, and that can be appropriate, but um, we we can't whitewash that history. It's messy uh, and it's very human. Yeah, we all, <laughs> we like to. It's like, yeah. well, the Netherlands, that must have been the, the best place to be. That's um, right. So yeah. 
Yeah, I don't often think of um, Geneva, Switzerland being um, the epicenter. Like, I don't, you, I, my mind doesn't go to Switzerland when I think about like the Reformation. It goes like Germany, France, um, England a little bit, and then the Netherlands. Like, so what was it about Geneva that everyone like ended up there? Well, like Kelvin, Kelvin's there, right? So he writes his institutes and they get translated a whole bunch of languages. He starts a seminary. Uh, there's a there's a reformer by the name of Theodore Beza, who's like the rector, the, the principal of there. Um, you have students there, like Guido de Bray was a student of the seminary. Yeah. And he wrote the Belgian Confession. Olivianus, Casper Olivianus wrote the Heidelberg Catechism. He studied there. John Knox, who's the reformer from Scotland, he studied there. Uh, but you have like um, Calvinists end up in Hungary. Like to this day, there's the Hungarian Reformed Church is like the largest Protestant church in Hungary. We forget right. the reformed believers in Hungary. Um, the Huguenots in France are staunchly Calvinist as well. So uh, right. there, there's we study the Netherlands because that's sort of where we come from. But uh, Calvin's influence and in Calvinism exists in all kinds of places, uh, including England, of course, and the Puritans, and uh, that gets translated to the United States. So uh, Calvin's influence goes really far and wide. Right. So our, yeah. So the, like you just mentioned, are there are there different like streams, the Huguenots end up somewhere. Like, do we see modern day um, manifestations of these different groups? Like, we're Dutch Reformed, but is there like, I mean, yeah, there's like, yeah. yeah. For sure. Like if you do some research into some of the different reformed denominations in, uh, let's say, United States, they have their own things, too. Like there's a whole pocket through the northern United States of of German uh, reformed churches. I forget which one it is uh, that has German influence. Right. And then you have the Free Church of Scotland that gets transplanted as well, including some in Canada um, that are of Scottish influence that are also sort of Calvinist as well. Uh, So each of these different denominations Many of them have their own initial ethnic uh, tie as well. It's just because some of them are older, you know, their ethnic ethnic uh, origins are a little more watered down than ours are. You know, we're still a little fresh off the boat. Right. <laughs> well, that makes sense. I guess we'll. I guess we'll probably see why because you know through the secession, like we've been kind of uh, refined, I guess, and then you know, shipped over here. So, yeah, Uh, the Netherlands is still very central. So for instance, in in 1619 is when you get the Synod of Dort, right? So in the the Netherlands, you have, you have Catholics, Anabaptists, uh, Calvinists, Lutherans, and then you have this whole group called the Remonstrants or the Arminians, right? And, and so they convene the Synod of Dort to deal with this. And that's actually hosted like by the monarchy uh, because it's a, a Protestant country. And, but you have observers coming from France, actually the ones from France, they weren't allowed to come because of the persecution there, but you have observers coming from all different neighboring uh, places. And so you have an international Synod at the Synod of Dort. So even though it's, yeah, it's our, it's our little Dutch place, uh, what happened there at the Synod of Dort in 1619 um, really had international consequences in terms of preserving uh, the doctrine of, of free grace, right? Of uh, preserving man's total depravity, uh, the free gift of, of grace through faith alone. And right. so, uh, yes, it's in the Netherlands. So, yes, it's our history, but that has ripple effects uh, all across Europe and then into the New World, of course. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, the so you mentioned that it was it was the state church still, I guess, at that point in 1619, yeah. which I mean, it's pretty soon following the Reformation, really. Um, yeah, uh, I'm not sure exactly. I can't keep track of all the dates in my head. Um, <laughs> Me uh, either. That, yeah, that's right. So so but you certainly have it that they have space for the Synod of Dort. That's where they eventually sort of finalize 
the Senate Dort is crazy. It does the it canvases the Dorts. It finalizes or publishes the final version of the the Church Order of Dort, and it even fi- uh, proposes a a, a church uh, a Bible translation, the uh, state brutality. Wow. So the uh, state translation. So like, is these are a big deal, right? And so commemorating that is a big deal. That's quite the synod, yeah. And they had lots of people there too, like even yeah. like delegates. That's right. And I forgot exactly how long it lasts, but uh, you can, if you Wikipedia, you can read about all the different members and you can go on all kinds of fun rabbit holes. <laughs> I might. That's, uh, yeah. How do you get anything done without any people there? That's I guess right. some are observing, but that's, uh, yeah, even the canons of Dort is like, how do you even produce a document like that at a place in time? That's right. I just, uh, yeah. I don't yeah. understand. It's, uh, different different times daughter. and different places. Yeah. Smart people. Yeah. So, so this, so you mentioned it's, it's still the state church at this point, right? In in sixteen nineteen with the canons, the canons, or sorry, the synod of Dort. Um, when, yeah, like I guess we're going to get into this the secession when when this church and the state really make a hard split. That's right. Um, what did that look like though between between say the Reformation or the synod of Dort and and the secession? Like, was the state church fairly? Um, like tyrannical <laughs> or was yeah. it um yeah was it acting how it should or yeah so if you think about so 1619 you have the Kansas door 1834 you have the secession uh, the first mm-hmm. secession right and uh so so that's a decent length of time if you think of just eras like that's that's many years it's, it's easy yeah. now when you just do a timeline just jump ahead <laughs> um but it is remarkable to think, well, you came from this glorious document. Like if you read the Canons of Dort, like it, they're beautiful and they're rich. You think, well, how did you, how did you get from here to here? Like you had it, right. what, what happened? Uh, but you have to remember that in the 1600s, all the way to the 1800s, you're dealing with the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment is like a fruit of the Reformation where people said, you know what, uh, ideas are open to be explored. And so people said, you know what, let's explore ideas like without scriptures. And, and so they came up with all kinds of different ideas, and that crept into the church, right? So a huge emphasis on rationalism over faith, right? I'm going to accept something because it's reasonable to me rather than accepting things by faith. And, right. and so a big thing, for instance, in, in the Enlightenment is, like, if you, you know, some of the big names is like Thomas Hobbes, uh, Voltaire, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, John Locke. Maybe you remember those from your high school days. Uh, they're all busy with, like, what is man like in a state of nature? Like, what are people really like? And right. and even though some of them, like Thomas Hobbes gets pretty close to depravity, none of them are willing to be, you know, full Calvinist and say, you know, we're totally depraved. Like, there's no silver lining. Like, as dark as it gets, that's how dark it is. Right. Um, and that's what the Synod of Dort had said is, is, no, it's, no, we're totally depraved, incapable of doing any good. So when rationalism starts to creep in and these Enlightenment ideas creep in, the first thing that goes is total depravity. And that mm-hmm. comes into the churches. So in the in the years following the, can- the, the the Synod of Dort, you see rationalism creep into the churches where they start to try to make uh, the Christian faith reasonable to the human mind. And uh, so they minimize depravity because nobody wants to hear that. And in some cases, even watering down the gospel to making uh, Jesus a good moral example rather than like uh, the story of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus is just a really good person, not necessarily the person who, through whom I have eternal life. Hmm. Um, and so that that's one movement that's happening to churches is like this rationalist one. And that the opposite side to that is a movement called pietism. And pietism says, you know what, all this head stuff, that's not what religion's all about. It's all about righteous living, holy living. 
And so you have these people focusing on that as in sort of the opposite side of the pendulum. And, and we all should know that orthodoxy and orthopraxy, like right living and right doctrine, they should go together. But in history, the pendulum always swings back and forth. That's maddening as a church history teacher, because, uh, but that's, that's the history of the, of the church in the Old Testament as well. And so you, you had both of those movements going on. And uh, so you have the, the church starting to preach sort of rationalist things, not the full gospel. You have a side movement of pietism going on. And then in, um, I think it's 1816, I want to say, uh, they imposed a new church order. I'm not sure it's a new church order, but um, there was a new subscription form that they imposed on the churches. And so they said, uh, instead of saying you have to teach the three forms of unity, uh, because they are faithful confessions of, of the church, or they echo what the Bible says, um, you have to teach them insofar as they agree with the word of God. So they they crack open a window. And so all these elders and, and ministers are no longer bound to confessions, but they're bound to teaching God's word as it's understood by themselves insofar which is, as, you know. Which is not bound at all. <laughs> no, that's right. So that, that door got cracked open. And so the, all of a sudden the preaching across the Netherlands gets wide open and you have all kinds of other things start to creep into the churches. Um, and, and, and the result is that like church attendance is down. Um, there's not a huge emphasis on holy living. You already see that like the, the Dutch go through a massive golden age. I always think that's fun as a Dutch guy. Like <laughs> you have this small, tiny country that's competing with all the giant colonial powers. Uh, but that also brings with it all kinds of other things in there, right? There's So it might've been a golden age from a prosperous uh, perspective, but not from a church perspective, not from a holy living perspective. So there's a lot of room for reformation again in the Netherlands in the 1800s. Yeah, there's that's a lot of us towards the secession. Right. Yeah, because in that period, there's a lot of, like, I mean, obviously the government had a lot of changes. Um, and I imagine, like, you know, politics isn't keeping things Calvinist. But they're they're also doing, like, a lot of exploration. And they're, like, yeah, they're kind of world powers, which is an interesting thing to think. Like, such a tiny little place that wasn't even a country years before that. Then it's... It, yeah, they were discovering new lands and sending explorers across seas. And um, how does that, yeah, does that take the focus off the church for the for the government? Do they kind of, like, I mean, the secession is kind of the church taking off from the government. Do they, um, was there really like a, were they actually watching over the church? Or like, or taking care of it, like like what uh, like what Rome would expect. Yeah, so I mean, the the church buildings are like this. The ministers all receive salaries from the government, like they're all oh, wow. supported by the government. So you're like your tithing is just, I mean, you give money to the church, but it's all taxation, all that. That's all run through it. The church buildings are owned, capital projects for church buildings. That's all government, right? And it's wow. it's a cultural Christianity, right? So I'm Dutch, therefore I'm Dutch Reformed. And everybody goes to the Dutch Reformed Church. Everybody belongs to the Dutch Reformed Church. Mm -hmm. There are a few pockets of Catholic churches here or there. Um, the Anabaptists have all skedaddled. They've gone off to Russia and then uh, wherever else they could find a home. Um, and there's still some pockets there left, but really you have a Dutch reformed country. And so uh, this is not how we design it, right? This is like, sometimes we like to think that a theocracy is, is the way to go. Like just mandate, if you're a citizen of Canada, you're a citizen of the reformed church. Yeah. Um, this is not the way to go. It's not the way to transform hearts and minds. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that, that also creeps into 
um, that also creeps into the Dutch Reformed churches as well, right? So people right. are Christians, but it doesn't necessarily live in their lives. And where it does live in their lives, so you have these groups of people who are faithful Christians, and they're gathering in these groups called, they're called conventicles. And these conventicles are like groups of believers where they are focused really carefully on pious living and on holy living and encouraging each other in that, but they're not reforming the church, right? So in the years before the 1800s, you have a movement called the Revi, which is a whole other movement. So if we chart, we go like Synodor, then we go Revi, which is like revival. And there's there's people in there in that movement that bring about revival, uh, but it doesn't reform the church. And that doesn't really happen until the secession, where, where it actually says, you know, we have reformation within the church in terms of believers, but it doesn't correct the church necessarily. Oh, interesting. And that's another so, one of those examples where it's like, it's not a flash in the pan, you know, Reverend DeCock shows up in 1834, boom, fix the problem. It's right. the groundwork is all under the surface so that when the Lord creates the right time, the church is allowed to flourish. Right. Yeah. I guess. So during that time, there wasn't leaders really making moves like they, I guess if they're, if they're all drawing a salary from the government, it's pretty so, hard to stand up. And, well, and they're always trained by the government as well. Right. So right. You, so just just jump into the secession. You have a guy, his name is Reverend Hendrik de Kock, uh, which if you're teaching high school history is a terrible name. Um, but uh, he, he's sort of the main character of, of the secession. He's trained in, in the whole liberal thinking in terms of modernism. You know, he would have preached sermons about man's ability to earn salvation by following Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and so he's, he's preaching in these churches, he's doing these things. And as the story goes, I've read two different versions of this. One is that an elder encourages him to read the canons of Dort, which is remarkable considering he's trained in the Netherlands and he had, he had not read Calvin's institutes, nor had he read the canons of Dort, right? So here's a, wow. a minister in the Dutch Reformed churches, not familiar with these. Uh, and so he reads them, but the other story is that he meets a, a farmhand in his congregation, a, a brother by the name of Klaas Kaipinga, as the story goes, and I, I, I understand it to be accurate. And uh, his famous quote is that, if I only had to add a sigh to my salvation, I would be eternally lost. And, and I like that story because this is just an average farmer. So sometimes when we teach church history, we hold up these people, but, but it's actually the Reformation starts in the hearts and minds of regular people as a farmer who would have been uneducated, who understood the gospel of grace and who used it to call back his pastor, who was this you know smart, learned man, to say, you don't understand. And so uh, Reverend Cock reads the Kansas Dory, he reads Calvin's Institutes, and his preaching changes. And it becomes very evident. It becomes so evident that people were coming from all over the Netherlands, packing into the church in Alrum in the Netherlands to hear Reverend de Kock, uh preach. Like he's the equivalent wow. of going viral. Like Reverend de Kock went viral <laughs> in the 1830s uh, because of his preaching. And so people would travel to hear Reverend de Kock preach because it was richer than the gospel, than the, the fake gospel that they were hearing in their own local churches. Wow. Um, That's so does that is that what triggers the uh the secession yeah so i mean when you go viral then you got a following and so he had a following uh and he actually wrote so he wrote a book i got the title here somewhere uh oh here the sheepfold of christ attacked by two wolves and defended by h de cock that was his tagline so uh, yeah no no hashtags in there but they're pretty much they're pretty much there that's his hashtag easy um, gets back then <laughs> that's right <laughs> So he's publishing things because that's how things worked back then. You publish brochures and people would like pass them around like, oh, I got this 
awesome brochure. You got to read this, right? It's right. it's the equivalent of sharing things on Facebook or or something like that, right? They've taken a step since nailing something to a door. That's right. But, but they're now printing it and distributing <laughs> it uh, as well. So that's that's one of the things. So so two guys, there's there's two brothers out there who are uh, sort of attacking the Kansas Dort, and he defends the Kansas Dort. That's one thing he does. Um, then another thing that Reverend DeCock does is is members from neighboring churches come to him and say, you know what? I don't want to baptize my kid in my church. It's not a faithful church. I want to baptize my kid in your church. And he says, no, nah, I can't do that. And eventually he feels bad for these parents. He does it anyway. So people come all the way from across the country to bring their kids to all room to have their children baptized in the full uh, gospel. Uh, the other thing that's happening at this time is that there's they're singing hymns in the churches. And some of these modernist ideas are creeping into the church through these hymns. This is a, a classic Dutch Reformed Thing. They'll like to bring that one up. So <laughs> yeah, you're telling me. It's the weeds too much. But yeah. in these hymns, the, sort of the language is 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 but more modernistic and a bit more um, about me and my relationship with Jesus Christ and my feelings and my. It's really ex- it, touching on the feelings rather than being doctrinally accurate. And so mm-hmm. uh, he starts to uh, he writes a brochure. He says uh, testing the hymns and them being found wanting, and that also spreads. And so eventually they call him in front of the synodical boards and say, you know what, you're causing a ruckus. Like you you can't be doing this. And uh, they had a choice either to respond to what he said or to shut him up. And so they tried to shut him up. They suspended him. And uh, he appeals, and they lift that for a while. Uh, but eventually, Reverend DeCock, he's on fire, uh, and he keeps writing, and uh, they depose him. And so he went through appeal after appeal. He even appealed to the king, um, uh, but he was deposed. He lost his status. And if you're a minister, like, you're paid by the state. If you're deposed, you're out of a job. You're probably out of a house, my guess is. He, he was married, he had children. And uh, so you're you're stuck. Like, that's a significant uh, thing, uh, but he he feels he has no choice, and so it's actually in 1834. Finally, at the urging of his, and I like this story, the urging of his consistory and his congregation, they urge him to break the bonds and say, "No, we're done." So he does. He's not a a, a leader in that sense, as in he's preaching and the gospel's changing hearts and minds. And together as a body in Alrum, they break the bonds, and so they meet in Alrum and they they sign a document called the Act of Separation or Return. And they sign this thing, the big thing, and they say, we we secede from this church, church, uh, state church. That's where you get the secession, not the yes. succession. Uh, <laughs> and they return to the truth of uh, of God's word. And so that you can find that document. It's translated. Uh, if you Google act of secession or return uh, or act of separation or return, I think it's Dr. Smith from our seminary who translated it. Um, and you can read the whole article where they lay out their case there as well. And so slowly but surely, uh, other ministers as well. At one point, there were six ministers who also seated, and Decock was the oldest one. He was 33, and uh, all the other ones were younger. And uh, they all left. Uh, many of them weren't even trained yet. Who uh, were they? Were trained, but they hadn't had a call yet. And so, uh, like for instance, Reverend Van Ralty, Albertus Van Ralty, uh, he he wanted to subscribe to the old subscription form, and so he wasn't allowed to be a minister. So he got called to those secession churches, and slowly but surely, those secession churches gained uh, steam. Wow. So was it, so the, if they decide to leave as a congregation, was that a, was that a thing that happened? Was there, were there other churches in that time that weren't state churches? Was that like allowed? Were they getting a hard time from the government? Because yeah, of that, that, that's, what's interesting is that no, of course they're, they're not allowed. And and so what the state did is they persecuted them. Um, so most of the secession people, they were not the elites. They were uh, hard regular folks. 
Um, you still had a class system very much back then. Uh, they were mostly the, the lower uh, middle class that was doing this. And so the government pu pulled a page out of a uh, classic textbook is where they put soldiers in their homes, right? So they just imposed soldiers in these people's homes so they could monitor them. Uh, that's, that's what the, the British did to the Americans in the in the American Revolution as well, is, is quarter soldiers in their homes. And uh, that happened in a few other places, also in France. And, and so these people were forced to worship in secret. Um, Reverend Cock went to jail. Um, they, they, there was uh, the, the people had their crops confiscated. All kinds of awful things happened to these people because they seceded from the, the state church, just in an effort to just shut this movement down and return to the status quo. You see, what's the goal? I guess the goal is money. Like they just, I guess they like. What what other reason is there? <laughs> Yeah, it just it's a loss of control. Like at this time, you still have it in in a little bit in history where it's like, if I'm the king and I can't control what religion people have, am I really the king? Right. Like, right. It, we're we're getting later. It's 1800s is not quite like that, but you still have that whole movement happening in the, in the French Revolution, even in in Great Britain. It, you know, I'm the king. I should be able to tell you what to believe, right? I should right. have the power. Yeah, and I guess in that time, like those groups rose up, like. In a, in a, you know, militarily, if that's, that's a right. word, you know, <laughs> like the Huguenots and like they were getting like those kind of guys, like movements were getting like slaughtered and persecuted. That's right. Um, yeah. But so that, that, I guess they posed a real political risk, not just a, yeah. a risk to the status quo, I guess. Yeah, it threatens the stability of, of, of the Netherlands at this time. And so that's where you have that first wave of immigration. So it's it's the, actually from the secession of 1834, where you have two guys, Reverend Finralti and Reverend Schulte, who who go immigrate emigrate to the United States, and they establish um, what will become eventually the Christian Reformed churches. Um, so well, in Holland, Michigan, is the first group with Reverend Finralti, and they get into it. It's always messy. Reverend Schulte and him get into a disagreement. Reverend Schulte goes to Pella, Iowa. Uh, Pella is, is named after the city where the, when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, they fled to Pella. So he names that Pella, Iowa. Uh, so that's, you know, the, if you've ever been down to Iowa, to the, the classic Dutch Reformed area, that's yeah. all founded by these folks uh, in that whole area as well. So, you know, really? Grand Rapids, Michigan, that whole area and Iowa, that's, these are settlers who leave after the secession of 1834. Okay. Well, not to get too much in the weeds, but what were they arguing about? Like, are they separate denominationally now, or are they kind of? No. So eventually, that that becomes the Christian Reformed Church in in Holland, Michigan. It's actually interesting. They make contact with what's called the Reformed Church in America. So the Reformed Church in America is actually founded in the early 1600s when the Dutch have a colony in New Amsterdam, which is now New York. So one of the very first, if not the very first, established church in the United States is actually a Dutch Reformed Church. And it wasn't really? until about the 1700s, they were still doing services in Dutch in the Reformed Church in America. Wow. Yeah. That is interesting. Our so Dutch get around. Did that, was that an immigration thing? Or was that... Uh... So that would have been the first colony of New Amsterdam, which eventually gets defeated, right? Or I think it's in a treaty where they lose that territory and that would become New York. And it would become, of course, the great American city. Right. But it's wow. it's originally New Amsterdam. The Reformed Church of America still exists today. It's it's uh, a lot more liberal uh, today. Uh, and 
you know, although it still holds the, the name reformed and is it's facing its own struggles right now. I believe a, a schism of a group of conservative people breaking off. But in, so in 1834, they go. And then in 1857, they basically realized that all the issues they had in the Netherlands are sort of the same problems in the Reformed Church of America. And so right. that's when they break off and they create what's now known as the Christian Reformed Church in North America. Oh, interesting. All right. Well, I'm sure these things will parallel as we discuss the secession right. and what happened in Holland, because they, you know, they always kind of seem to. Yeah. So, all right. So we had a whole, a whole group split off of the, the government run reformed church, I guess. Um, what happens to these people? Do they, does the government like kind of quash them and they get soldiers in their homes? Like, how does that end? Cause eventually like we don't have soldiers in our homes. So eventually that, that comes to an end. So what, right. uh, so you have a yeah. whole a whole group that leaves. That that's one way to solve the problem. And and the stories, like if you ever read those stories, like it's what they face there. Like Holland, Michigan today. If you ever get a chance to go there, there's actually a there's a museum there that the and you can. It's it's fun to go there as a as a Dutch reform person because uh, the stuff you see in the museum is the stuff you see at your grandparents' house. Uh, and, uh, it's just there's the a same. Whole, that's there's right. a bowl of Werther's on the table. It's like uh, <laughs> all that Delft blue stuff is what you see there. And, oh yeah. And, and, yeah. But uh, I went there as a kid. But there's a whole history of the Dutch reform settlers in in Grand Rapids, and, and they face incredible hardship and death. Like life expectancy was was dismal. Uh, like they they did yeah. far more funerals than baptisms or weddings. Uh, so, and they did, it was wilderness. They basically got a piece of land and they carved it out and, the, and they established what would, I mean, they got Kelvin college today and you start doing the, the list of, uh, you know, all the, the things they accomplished is absolutely remarkable. Yeah. So that, that's, that's one group uh, back in the Netherlands. I mean, it's part of a larger shift that's taking place. So I'm not sure exactly the history, but eventually you, you have, they get to a place of toleration where they're allowed to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing that complicates it, and we can't get into it here, is that um, the churches find, they all leave, each individual church leaves, some of them find a common ground, but not all of them. And that's the frustrating thing about studying church history is like, oh, right, we have a yeah. So all the ones that left, they must have all gotten along, right? Like, yeah. it's never <laughs> that. That's never how it is. That's right. If you put a bunch of malcontents into a room, you just breed more malcontents, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, even even if they are zealous for what they believe in and and right in what they believe, and so you already have fragmentation. So the, the flow chart for Dutch church history gets complicated right away in 1834 because you have a group of them together, and then you have individual churches following individual leaders, and some of them find each other. And so if you ever want to map it out, you can. It exists out there, but uh, it's really messy. It's quite the tree, eh? Yeah. Yeah. It would. Yeah. So we get down into a kind of another split as far as i understand i mean i don't know um which is like this is all yeah my mind's kind of like in early 1800s i'm like all right that's like that's like reformation in my mind that's so old then we get into like you know more recent history into like pushing into the the 19th well we're in the 19th century pushing into the 20th century um like I forget what it was, 80, 86, maybe? 1886? That's right. So so you have the secession first, and then they, that exists. And in 1886, you have what's going to be another split off the state church. And uh, that's where the great um, Dutch guy, Abraham Kuyper, comes in. Um, interestingly, not as a minister. He's initially trained as a minister. Uh, he leaves the ministry. He establishes a university. He establishes two newspapers. He becomes prime minister of the Netherlands. But, uh, you know, we remember him because he was an elder in the church in Amsterdam. 
but we'll get to that uh, <laughs> later. So in 1886, all the, the state church never changed. So when, when you have the act of separation, secession return, they were calling them to reformation and the, the state church didn't respond. Right. And I think that's also a pattern we have to see in church history. We don't celebrate splits, right? We, we grieve splits. And so what you would like to see is that when a group splits, the other ones are called to account and you have healing and, and, uh, and that didn't happen. So by 1886, all those issues still remain. Uh, they were still singing those hymns. They still weren't teaching total depravity. And the preaching was suffering so much so that um, church attendance was very poor. And these the pious were still meeting in separate groups. Like they, they weren't bringing about reformation in their local churches. And so the, the issue that sort of brought 1886 around is that um, it had they had boiled church membership down to the point that when you made public profession of faith, you only had to confess the Trinity. That's it. Right. Wow. So it's like, what, what, what do you believe? Well, I believe in the Trinity. Um, maybe the apostles creed would be sufficient. Um, but you know, in, in terms of how we understand it is the Trinity. And so some churches said, well, we're going to, we have a higher standard for church membership than that. And that's what happened in Amsterdam. Now Amsterdam is huge. Uh, just give me the pr- impression. I don't know how big the church was, but they had a hundred elders. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm not sure how you figure that out. Uh, I I don't know all the logistics of it, but they had a hundred well, elders. All so, of Amsterdam must have been a church. That's right. Yeah, it would have been. That's right? huge. Yeah. So uh, they said we're not going to do that. Uh, we're we're going to hold our members to a higher standard. So people in Amsterdam, what they would do is they'd go to neighboring church, do public professional faith there, and then take their attestation back to Amsterdam and say, mm-hmm. "Here's my attestation. Here I am." Got him. got him right like, it's, it's like a it's like a r- religious loophole right yeah right <laughs> um and uh the consistent amsterdam decided that they weren't going to accept those membership transfers um and so that made its way back to synod and synod actually deposed 80 out of the 100 consistory members of amsterdam including the great abraham kuyper and so those 80 of consistory, along with members, they they went into what they call dolianti, which means grieving. So they went into the 1886, the event is called, the we have the session of 1834, 1886 is called the dolianti, which is grieving. So they grieved what was happening to the churches. And so they, they also split off, and that same pattern happened all across the Netherlands. These groups also split off looking to reform and return to the truth of God's word. Right. And so uh, and and the great leader in that was Abram Kuyper, who had, you know, he had a huge voice um, and so a huge following as well. Um, uh, he had some teachings that that were not OK uh, in terms of presumptive regeneration. Uh, people had problems with his teachings about common grace and about church. Um, uh, but that comes into that. That problem comes into it later. So you have the secession churches and you have the Dolianti churches. And they realized pretty quickly um we got a lot in common. We actually left for all the same reasons. And there's actually a quote out there where one of the speakers at Synod says, look, you were, you were more, not more holy, but like you showed us the way you were right. And we erred by not leaving when you left, but now we're out and we need to find common ground. And so um, over the course of six years, they, they grew together and they united in 1892 into one federation um, of, of the secession churches and the Dolianti churches. Right. Unless you think that simplifies things, it doesn't, because not all the secession churches did join and not all the Dolianti churches joined. So instead of so if you have two becoming one, it actually becomes two becomes 
three, right? Because you have the union and oh. then ones that stay apart. Sure. Right? But then those ones didn't get together to make it simple. No. Yeah, no, right. No. That makes sense. Yeah. Why in, would in they? Terms of, in terms of our own history, that the free reformed churches were one of the were the group of churches that didn't join with the union. Were so, they the secession secession churches? Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, if you if you track that, you see the influence in terms of um, how their church is structured, in terms of the style of their preaching, in terms of their own uh, ecumenical relations, that that whole you can understand it from where they come from. Right. So the free reform okay. churches still exist across, you know, in our area here in southern Ontario, we have lots of free reform churches. Yep. And that's a split from that 1834 group. Interesting. Right? So that's that's actually interesting because when I was doing my brief amount of research for this, which I, you know, was not at all comprehensive. Um I I, I think it was Wikipedia that said that the free reform churches are the church of the secession. So that's, that's right. I guess where that that's where it comes from, because I guess they are like strictly the churches of the secession because they didn't uh make you know make a move after that i guess that's right so in in 1892 you know the canadian reform churches if we trace ours back to 1892 right that's where we come out of so right. when we were established in canada you still had that in the early years of the canadian reform church reaching out to the free reform churches saying back in 1892 we recognized you as a faithful church and we still recognize you as a faithful church right and it's only until recently that there's some dialogue going back and forth Right. I mean, in the early years, there were like you can actually find a book that there was a whole get together of free reform to Canadian reform where they talked yep. through all these things. So there certainly has been a, a uh, an attempt to grow together. Uh, we exist right. side by side. We work side by side in schools. But in terms of church federations, there's still separation there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, we've had I mean, we've had discussions about that and um, our relationship with the URC and also right. the, the, the free reform. They're they're a little closer to the free reform than we are. That's right. Um, and in terms of attestations and things like that. And it's all, you can trace it all into the church history. Like if you would actually just work your way back through all these stories that you and I are talking about right now, you can sort of find the roots in those things. And so even though to you and I, it seems like ancient history, uh, those, those events have real impacts on what happens still today. Right. Yeah. That's, uh, that's something. Cause it's, I mean, it seems like it's like bred into your genetics. Even the hymn thing is like, you know, if you're Canadian reformed, then you've had this problem in your past. That's Somehow right. your genetic code remembers. <laughs> That's right. Maybe. So, yeah. Okay. So the, the churches get together. We have like kind of three churches that come out of that, that merge, I guess. Um, yeah. What was the, well, well, let's talk about Kuiper, I guess, because I kind of want to understand him because he comes into the, into the secession churches and, and he has an influence, but not like, you know, yeah, all positive, I guess, like like you said. Um, was this was he part of this synod where he was deposed and and I guess they must have been were they excommunicated or just like kicked out? I'm not sure they were ever excommunicated. I think they split off sort of before it ever came to that point. Okay. Right. So they they would have left the church and then united. And so he he's like if you if you look through the proceedings of 1892, like Kuiper speaks often. I believe at one point he's the chairman of the synod. Just to add to his impressive resume, um, as well. You got to figure. You got. Right. Was he prime minister before that, or was was that afterwards? Like, what what influence did he have as prime minister? Did he make any moves? Like, oh, but but Kuiper is very significant. It's it's actually interesting because if I think of my early years, Kuiper was like a bad guy, like because right. he, he had bad teachings. Like, because when we get to the liberation, which the Canadian from Jews come out of, Kuiper was sort of like suspect 
right? And it's actually just recently, like when, when you hear Arpa Canna come and speak, you know, they have, they spend lots of time dealing with Kuiper's teachings and, and Kuiper's influence and stuff like that. So uh, we can, we can celebrate accomplishments, even if we don't agree with everybody, everything. And I think we've come yeah. away in that way. It was like, it doesn't have to be a dichotomy of like, this guy's all good or all bad. It's, right. you know, we have some hesitations, but we, we recognize, you know, the Lord's gift in these things as well. And so right. Kuiper's, I mean, he's a larger than life figure. And uh, I think in some ways, perhaps he, he, he pushed the issue. There were lots of secession churches that were nervous about Kuiper. They didn't really like his teachings, but because they had so much in common, they figured we should just press on because it's more important to be together. Right. Mm-hmm. And there were other groups that said, no, we don't want to go in that direction. And, and you see the fruits of that as well. Yeah, right, right. I mean, we kind of had that now, nowadays a little bit too. We have churches that were very similar too. We're like, oh, we should get together. And then there's some, you're like, yeah, but this. You're like, okay. And, and it takes okay, time, right? It takes some of the generations yeah. because of the, the histories that go 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 with it, right? Yeah, I was re- kind of reflecting on that a little bit. Like, well, I mean, you were discussing it before. Like, you could just stick it on a timeline in your classroom and say, here's this, here's this, and put a couple marks on a chalkboard. But in, in the grand scheme of things, you're like, well, they figured that out. That was only 200 years it took them to figure it out. And then now we're like, well, why does it take more than a week to figure this out? <laughs> That's right. Let's just bash it Put a committee together ad hoc, yeah. right? Yeah, and exactly. Like, what's so complicated? That's but right. I guess, yeah, when, you know, maybe people look favorably on uh, on us for our, you know, discussion too, but... Who knows? Um, so did he, did did Kuiper, I guess they, the... Um, the Netherlands still had a monarch at that time, right? Yeah, so he was prime minister. So he was yeah. prime minister, but he doesn't have a lot of influence on the on the state church then. So I mean, Kuiper's really the guy who, like, when you talk about uh, sphere sovereignty, right? Uh, you've probably yeah. had uh, heard those conversations where he starts carving out and saying, "Look, the church has its own sphere," and and he really advocated for proper church government, right? That the government's not invested in it, but the church and the, right. the old synod, the old uh, church order of Dort, that there is a proper way to do it. So the church is its own sphere. And he advocated for Christian schools as, as a, as, as a, that parents are a sphere and the state has a sphere. And, and he really mapped all that out. So he, um, I mean, even among secular people, like uh, Kuiper made it overseas. He spoke at Harvard, right? Oh, wow. And uh, he had a, you can Google that too, it's a series of Harvard lectures. Uh, and still there's, oh. there's secular people that are impressed with Kuiper for his ability to, create a vision for where the church exists, but it's a separate sphere from, from the state. Um, right. and that's all, you can, people have written books on that. They're still writing books about that. Yeah. Right? yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, we talked about COVID. So that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess there's not a YouTube of this Harvard lecture. So it's a oh. hard to capture for a podcast. Listener, Maybe AI so. can do that for us. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to get someone to record them onto audiobook or something. That's right. Yeah. But, Okay, so so he is, yeah. So he is quite an influence, but I guess we're getting away from the time where you know we're having wars over religion in in Europe, and he's kind of getting into a a bit of a you know kinder era in yeah, uh, it's, in it's Europe. a civil discussion, right? And it's it's a matter of where where this, this the church has a place to figure these things out, and the state doesn't really as much have anything to do with it anymore right where right. that that division that's happening all across europe is the, the the division between church and state is separating um not always in a positive way like i mean church and state should be separate uh but religion and state should not be and that's where you start to drift in other right. parts of the world as well right right yeah i guess so, so the, yeah. the 
the politicians are, you know, okay to go with their enlightenment thinking and right. just leave the church alone. Yeah. yeah. So right. you, you, what you have then is, is, is the seeds for 19, like the next events that we'll talk about then is 1944, which is the liberation. Yeah. The seeds for that are already in 1892, right? Cause in 1892, you have uh, people who are, who are concerned about Kuiper's teaching, but they're not, not going to make it a stumbling block. Right. Mm-hmm. And those never go away because Kuiper's teachings uh, become quite well-established uh, his teachings about sort of uh, the church, about common grace, about um, presumptive regeneration. We won't get into that here, uh, <laughs> but all these heavy doctrinal issues, uh, people were uncomfortable with that. So that was the one thing. But the other thing that happened was that um, the synod of that 1892 church started becoming quite hierarchical. So there was an event in the 1920s where a minister said, I don't take the first chapters of Genesis literally. And they convene synod and uh, they depose him. And synod shouldn't depose anybody. The consistory deposes. And so if you trace that whole story, it's a, it's a minister by the Reverend, name of Reverend Gail Kirkin. Um, he synod oversteps their boundaries. And so you have two issues in 1940s, the late 1930s. You have um, hierarchical tendencies and you have Kuiper's teachings. And um, so Synod, for instance, met quite some time and then disbanded and then got back together again. And Synod shouldn't do those things. Synod can only deal with issues that are put on their table from lower assemblies or from consistories, right? But Synod sort of operated as its own authority and its own thing as well. And so there were uh, several people spoke out about this. There are three main guys. Uh, just add to our name repertoire. Uh, yeah. One guy uh, is named, I don't know his name, first name, A. Jance. He was actually a school principal. I like him because he's a, he's a common guy and he's a principal. He's so, one uh, of your guys. Yeah. He's one of my guys. Um, and another guy, Professor Haydanis, he spoke against the hierarchical tendencies. And then the, sort of the main guy was Dr. Class Skilder. So, you know, if we're talking about the Canadian Reformed, I used to call them the Canadian Reformed homeboys. Um, <laughs> Dr. Class Skilder was uh, one of them, right? And he opposed Kuiper's teachings uh, about covenants, about regeneration, about church. And uh, he, he defended historical redemptive preaching. And so they spoke out against these things. And so what they did is they just had magazines. They just published articles against each other, right? Um, just, they just clarioned it. <laughs> they, cl- they clarioned it out. Uh, <laughs> the Day from Atsi, I think, is the newspaper there. Okay. And so they, they went back and forth. And the synod convenes, and they try to settle things. But this is 1939. And so Hitler's invading Poland and he's invading the Netherlands. And so the people are like, you know what, let's hold off on this. Like we got other fish to fry. And they said, no, we're going to do this anyway. So they convened in it anyway. And in the meantime, Skilder's writing against the, the Nazi government, like heavily. Uh, Hitler's not a legitimate leader. We have to oppose them, uh, encouraging members to join the resistance. Like he's uh, he's a real... He strongly opposes that, whereas other Dutch reformers didn't necessarily speak so strongly against it. Um, right. And so uh, he, the, the Germans, he actually ends up in prison and the Germans say, you can't write anymore, like you're not allowed to. And so he's defenseless. So the main spokesperson against these issues is defenseless. And so Synod convenes again and they adopt what are called doctrinal pronouncements. They basically said, this is what we agree about these topics, presumptive regeneration, common grace. And so Skilder, in the meantime, is sending private letters trying to get into Synod, and, and they ignore him. And actually, they go beyond ignoring him. They suspend him. So Synod suspends Dr. Skilder, uh, even though 
even in our churches still today, the, the seminary professors are under the supervision of local churches, right? They, they're the ones who hold their credentials, if you will, yep. right? And so if they were ever uh, wrong in teaching, it's consistory who opposes them, not synod. Right. right. Even though Senate them. appoints them to the seminary. Right. And yeah, that's like, that's true. Cause I was just, just before I left uh, Hamilton to come up Calgary way, we, um, we had a, a seminary professor move into the church and we had like, it was an interesting thing because you have to technically call him as a minister. Right. Um, and even though he's not going to preach off the pulpit or, or draw a salary from the, right. from the church or anything. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so those are these neat pieces that, are explained through our church history, right? Right. Yeah, uh, because because yeah. it's a it's, it's still a retaining those things from those old ones. So so Skilder they suspend him for support, um, including and also Professor Haydanis as well, uh, and they're supported as well. And so there's a whole bunch of it, they 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 depose whole consistories, they depose whole congregations, like they just they just unilaterally try to shut the whole thing down. And so uh, and this is this is what they're pointing out is that that synod has. Was taking on more authority for itself. Synod can't bring things to their own table. Business always has to come from a lower one, all the way up there. And if you ever read the Acts of Synod, you know, which most people don't do, there's yeah. a whole bunch of like rules about admissibility. And mm-hmm. those things also sometimes think, I remember the first time I sat in consistory, I was like, man, is this ever unnecessarily complicated? Uh, right. But all yep. those yep. things have roots in our church history, lessons, if you will, that we've learned. Uh, and so you can gain a greater appreciation for them when you understand sort of the historical roots. Well, you get frustrated because everything moves so slow. Like we covered, so we actually did an episode summarizing the last synod and, and kind of talking through some of the issues. And yeah, one thing that hit me about that too was like, you get at the synod table and then there's two proposals and both are no good. Then can't you just make a third proposal? It's like, no, we got to go back three years from now. We'll have another proposal. That's right. That'll be like a shoe in because we already discussed it, but it's just like, it's something like, yeah, but couldn't you just do it there? But I guess this is like the history that shows probably yeah, not a good yeah. idea. So, and and you could like, their thing is that you can say, well, that's tradition. Well, no, you could go back to 1619 and look at the church order of Dort, which our church order is based on and understand sort of the biblical reasons for that. And, and there are some, if you read through the book of Acts, uh, through parts of the New Testament, there's principles at play there that we can draw out from to explain those things. And right. that's what Skilder and Credanus was doing, saying, you know what, this is not right. And so eventually things came to a head. And so in uh, 1944, they get together in The Hague, and they sign this time what's called the Act of Liberation and Return. And so they see themselves as the official continuation of the 1892 church, but liberated, right. or in Dutch, Act, right? Um, and, and they, interestingly, recently merged back with the group they split off with in 1944. Hmm. So that doesn't exist anymore. But that's a whole, that's, that's more modern history. So right. really, in 1944, they say, we are liberating ourselves from hierarchy, and extra scriptural binding, where they went beyond the confessions and they said, we are going to bind all ministers to that. And, and that's why I think you still see a tendency today at Synod to not sort of adopt pronouncements that go beyond confessions. So you'll hear arguments every once in a while that we have to update our confessions or add things in terms of some of the sexuality and gender ideology. Um, there's a hesitancy to do that also because of our history, that we add on pronouncements over and above these three forms of unity. Right. And that yeah, comes that from 1944. Right. That makes good sense. So there's, yeah. so from the 19, uh, sorry, from 1892, um, where we have this, this merger, I guess, to the 1944, 
I mean, that's only like 52 years. Like that's the same people like Skilder would have been around um, for both. I don't know all their biographies well enough. In, in some cases, I'm not sure the union ever totally worked. Like in some places you had Reformed Church A and Reformed Church B, where one was a secession church and one was a union church. And they just, they had a hard time getting together because you right. don't just forget. Like if you're, if you're an 1834 person, you don't just forget that those people, that church or that state or that government mistreated you. And, oh, now we're on the same page. We're going right. to, it takes a long time. And in some places, I'm not sure it ever resolved itself. Right. Well, I mean, I guess you see this, <laughs> everyone has their history. So it's even nowadays, you can hardly blame people for having their history and, and being aware of what they should be aware of. Right. Like, yeah. And it takes generations, right? So, you know, one of the one of the last things you, you want to discuss was sort of like, how did we get to the Canadian Reformed Churches today? Yeah. Like, how did, we, oh, yeah. you know, how did we get here? Well, that that has its own history that informs sort of our current history as well. So the, you have, after the liberation and, and the liberation in the Netherlands as well, you have all these people who's, who, like, housing was awful, prospects was not great. And so you had people considering immigration. And then church life was also difficult. Right. Um, you had families where these ones joined the liberations, these ones did not join the liberation, right? So that causes significant family rifts. And so how do you solve those? Well, you just leave, leave. right? And yeah. so you have people mm-hmm. from the liberation who 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 looked at their options and and basically you could choose South Africa, um, Australia, or or Canada. And each of them had their own historical roots as to why that would be an appropriate fit. And people chose right. based on uh, sometimes randomly, or perhaps they didn't make a real choice at all, or just by God's providence. Uh, but the liberation transplanted itself into Australia, South Africa. And, see, is that and something Canada. you see? Like, is that similar to like the Anabaptists who kind of get kicked out? Like, or I'm just kind of curious about that move because we just come through the war, and then I can't even believe they're dealing with this stuff during the war. It's like. Yeah. The stories yeah. you hear from the war are insane, too. And that's right. 1944, they're like, let's get to it. Um, yeah. So they separate. But then it's kind of like socioeconomic issues that also drive the immigration, no? Like, they kind of... Mostly. I'm not sure it was religious at all. Like, Right. So you is, it, talk- is it that there's a wave, like of immigration regardless of the religion and then it just so happens that in included in that is you know our ancestors who come here and and you know christians who go in different places was there like an equal proportion of like liberated and non-liberated people moving or was it like liberated was kind of like let's get out because no i think it's fairly universal like it's it's lots of dutch people and 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 in 1944 let's say let's be clear most uh most dutch people are reformed Right. So when we think of Canada here, we have the Netherlands Reformed congregations. Uh, Many of them came in the same time uh, our grandparents and great grandparents came. Uh, The CRC grew like crazy when when many of them came. Right. Because if you were if you weren't part of the liberation, you just joined the Christian Reformed Church or you joined the Free Reformed Church or the Netherlands Reformed congregations. Right. So all of those churches exist in some ways, but they really were also established. So they basically took the church issues from the Netherlands and just carried them overseas. Yeah, yeah. But not not on purpose because if you if you read the early stories of the Canadian from churches what they did is they they settled in places often somewhat randomly if like I grew up I mean we were in Winnipeg you had people who were like oh we were supposed to go to BC but the train dropped us off in Carmen. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it does seem random like Neerlandia seems random to me. 
even living right. in Calgary, I'm like, and why up there? That's um, right. That's right. The, the churches in like people come to Calgary and the first thing they say is like, why is this church? Our church is pretty small. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like we have like 250 people or something, um, mm-hmm. but it's a huge city and it's like, it's bigger than Edmonton and our Canadian reformed church in Edmonton is the whole community up there is huge. It's like four churches in Edmonton and then more up North. And like, it's just surprised to see where everybody ends up. But I guess it's the same thing as the Iowa is it Iowa yeah. and, uh, and Michigan, right? Like why there? Like it's just kind well, of, it's, it's politics is, is the government has this group of, of people who are known to be industrious and hardworking. They're like and stick them in the North. <laughs> you plop them in undesirable places, sort of, and yeah. uh, make sure they have a go at it. And then a lot of it is networking, like one networks the other and sponsors the other. And, and the stories are, are absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, and most of them, if you read the stories, they went first to local churches. So there was never an intent to start a liberated church in Canada. That was not the intent. Um, I've heard stories of people attending the local Anglican church because there are Anglican churches that are quite reformed, uh, but they couldn't find their feet there. Um, mm-hmm. But many of them found the local CRC and started attending there, the, community, the Christian reformed churches. And uh, what they tried to do is take, they, they had just come out of liberation, which is like a significant thing to do. Like you don't do that easily. And so no. these issues were passionate, they, they were near and dear to them. And so they would take that to their consistories at the local Christian reform churches and try to get them to understand sort of what the issues were. And, and the Christian reform church at their synod had decided we're not taking a side, right? We're not making a side between the liberated or the, the other church. We're, we're not going to pick a side. That's their squabble over there. We exist over here. But what right. happened was when Skilder, Skilder came overseas for a speaking tour, uh, they were advised not to welcome him on their pulpit because he was a schismatic. So they didn't take a stand, but they did take a stand. And so when right. the liberated people came to the local Christian from churches and tried to bring up these issues about the Netherlands, including uh, doctrinal issues, not just synod issues, uh, they weren't reciprocated. And so they eventually decided only after exhausting the other resources that they would establish these churches. And if you, if you, I mean, if you ever read the book inheritance preserved, um, yep. that's the whole story of these immigrants that are by way of chain letters and uh, letters back and forth are establishing churches. So that in the 1950s, uh, I think what in the year 1956 were established or five were established uh, Lethbridge, Edmonton, Irlandia, Georgetown, which is Orangeville, New Westminster in BC, and then Carmen. Right. Um, right. Homewood at the time. So so it was only really after they were here for a while that you established Canadian Reformed churches. So we don't we don't understand that as a split though. Eh? So like was it it wasn't really a uniform everyone kind of joined the CRC, got frustrated and split off. It's more like we just never really found a home as liberated and, church. And every every story of every individual is different because in some cases they did find a home. In other cases, they like at one point there was a partnering with the Protestant Reformed churches, which is a, a church that split off of the Christian Reformed churches. So at one point oh, in Hamilton, oh. for instance, the two churches merged, the Canadian Reformed Church and the Protestant Reformed Church, and then split apart again. Oh, wow. um, like these are these are stories that are that are really difficult and and um and, and they're I mean, these immigrants also they had larger than life characters because that's what it took to be an immigrant, right? That, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've, just, and, we've actually talked about this in the podcast too before, that it's interesting that you have uh, immigration. You have to be a certain character to immigrate and yeah. to even be successful at all. Um, and not just to, to follow the, you know, to, if you're, if you're a guy making us building a school or building a church, it's like, no wonder these stories are exciting. Cause these, these guys must've been characters. Like just they, they had, yeah. 
they had a willpower to make business work and and they're you know settle in but they didn't have i mean they came through the liberation i guess and they just had a you know a bone to pick i guess they were staunch in their faith and they lived out of it right like yeah. you know and they didn't talk about it necessarily i, I remember visiting a, uh, an older couple who was in my ward and trying to get a sense for like how did you walk by faith in those early years? And they said, Mark, we didn't talk like that. Like that's, that's, that's the way other people talk about walk by faith, the prayer filled life. Like they just, they just lived out of faith because what other option did you have? Yeah. Like, right. They were living on a prayer. Like that's, that's all they literally had. Right. And so they, yeah. you know, when we talk about living by faith and walking by prayer, that was just, that's all they literally had. Like they didn't have other options. Yeah to fall back on. And, and so right. it, it's their existence. And that's, that's the roots of our, of our institutions that we have here in Canada. Uh, only what are we seven years later? Um, and yeah. it's remarkable what's established here. Yeah, it and, really and is. It's still fresh. So, so for instance, in some places, the, the, the history between the URC and the CANRC can be difficult because that history is still alive where liberated people went to the Christian from church and said, well, we, we don't want to join this church. We're going to start our own thing. And now those people have left the URC and they say, oh, okay. left the Christian Reformed Church and just started the United Reformed Church. Oh, now you're good enough for us. And it's like, oh, now we're good enough for you? Right? right. So it's it, there. Are, this takes time. There are yeah. layers because there's human stories involved and there's human feelings and beliefs and and uh, it, it's messy. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's again, if you look back on the timeline of these churches that, that got together successfully or that split apart, they're there's hundreds of years in there sometimes and and the ones that aren't probably didn't go good so <laughs> that's probably something we can learn from and um yeah i think like as we get further more generations in like we're i guess i'm third generation canadian dutch reformed but as we get further in would i mean where do you see this like do you see these things coming together like based on the history that we have do you see us like the URC, FRC kind of? It, it's hard to say. You know, I, our generation's not great at, like, the previous generation, what they read and what they were busy with is remarkable. Like, you'd have the average worker who was going home and reading Calvin's Institutes. Now, I don't know about you. Like, I've read excerpts. I have not read Calvin's Institutes, right? No, and it's, I, I'm a, yeah. I, I study, right? Like, so I don't, I don't spend my evenings doing that. That's what they did. Like they were reading, they were reading Bavink, they were reading Kuiper, they were reading like heavy duty stuff. And, and, you know, uh, maybe they didn't talk about their faith as openly and expressly as perhaps our generation has, uh, but they knew, they knew their doctrines. Right. Um, so it's yeah. not all, all, all bad. Like, Sometimes I think we're quick to say, you know, those are all past like, bygones, be got bygones. Let's, 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 let's drop it all. And I think, I think that's not the way to go either. Um, but we're also keen to look poorly on our own heritage, right? Um, I'm amazed when I stumble on like the gospel coalition and other websites who are discovering our old dead Dutch guys and loving them. Right. And so right, yeah. uh, people are retranslating Skilder stuff right now. They're retranslating uh, all these people that are in our heritage and and finding beauty in it. And, and, you know, some of us are inclined to to squander those things. So uh, certainly when we talk about ethnicity and about our Dutchness, we have to be careful about those things. But you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
I think right. I think we're able to see that churches are becoming more multicultural, and 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 we have to be careful about what is cultural, what is what is theological, and and be very pro- careful about that, and and na- navigate that slowly and methodically. Even though sometimes we just want to hurry up, right? Like, yeah. Right. There are others looking out into our community and and liking what they see and wanting to to join in it. While we have our, some people in our own community who want to uh, throw it all away and start from scratch, right? So it's yeah. church life hasn't. It wasn't easy in 1834. It wasn't easy in 1886. It wasn't easy in 1892. It wasn't easy in 1944. We can't expect it to be easy in 2023. Yeah, it just seems like <laughs> when you look at history, you think, "Well, that was then. Now is now. We could deal with it now, right?" I mean, I'm sure they thought the same thing in you know 18 or 1944. They were like, "Well, you know, what we've got it dealt with now. We've got it right figured it." Uh, yeah, no, when I was, when I was looking into this a little bit, I was reading a little bit on the CRC history too. And, and it's funny that you, you say that. Cause like they, um, I'm curious about the term Dutch church or Dutch reformed because it, yeah, a lot of people in our, in our society now don't like the term because it's, it's like eth, ethno, you know, whatever, like centric, I guess. So like, you just, we don't like things that are like, no, it's us and not you. Like, it, that's what it sounds like. But I guess you can mean Dutch church in, in the terms of, like, history. But it it is so much the Dutch church, um, Dutch reform, right? Um, the CRC well, writes on their website, like, we are not a Dutch reformed church. Like, that's what they're, like, they're excited to kind of get away from that term. Whereas, like, so they, I, it, it kind of sounded like they were like, well, we were here before the Canarsi and, and, and stuff came over. So we've, we've been here since the 1600s. Well, then we're not really Dutch reformed. We're like, we're something else. We've, we've been here longer. So we've kind of shed that, that branch, but like shedding, shedding that kind of like brand isn't really, I don't find it like helpful, but. Well, I I think one of the things that we have to look at and say um, what what we've been successful at. And I mean, I'm sitting here speaking to you from covenant Canadian Reformed teachers college. And one of the things that we've been successful at is establishing uh, covenant schools where we tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of God and we tell them about who they are and we tell them about about the churches they join and about the the, the people who they are and and we we practice a, a term I stumbled upon recently covenant succession that we tell the next generation so that they indeed do that and if you yeah. if you cease to do that you're going to have a split of generations so when we have generations of Dutch reformed Christians you know, if you ask the average Dutch Reformed Christian, how far back do you have to go before you find out people who aren't Christians? Many of us can't do it. Well, well that's right. nothing but blessing upon blessing, right? Like that's an incredible riches. And, and, and let's let's find a way to share that riches of telling the next generation and of sharing that way of covenant education. Uh, I know I've had some contact with the folks in um, at Beacon Hill Christian School in Toronto where they're establishing new a new school and and they're excited about this idea of covenant Christian education and and exploring ways to to share with that in, in what's going to be a most multicultural Canadian reformed well, quasi Canadian reformed school right um, yeah. so they're busy exploring and thinking about what that looks like and how do we how do we share our joy of covenant succession of covenant schools of covenant education with others uh, as something that's rich in our heritage and not something to be embarrassed about right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I love just walking through this, this history because it just makes you realize like it's not us because we're Dutch. It's just, that's where it came from. So if we can share, you know, if we can make other cultural people who are reformed, appreciate what happened in Holland and, and the whole 
the struggle, <laughs> you know, like it, it hasn't been easy, I guess for, I mean, not for us, but for everybody else. Um, if we can make them appreciate what, what's been done in the past in our, in, in our history, in our heritage, like then I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom there and, you know, people can, we could do all sorts of, of, of things with church polity and, and, and whatever, but there's recognizing the work that's been done and, and the struggles that have been had. So I, I think that's really important, even in our cultural context. So this has been, yeah, man, this is so, <laughs> this has been so good. Uh, is there anything else that you, uh, you had in mind um, to mention that we didn't get to touch on? I mean, we kind of walked through the whole history um, yeah. up, no, up to now, but. So, so I think the last, the, la- the last little pieces is, is that uh, just encouraging people to, to explore it. Like I, I taught it in grade 10 and I've taught it now at teacher's college and, and both of those, I'll be honest, is not easy. It's hard to, con- it's, they're intrigued by it, but you can get lost in the weeds and, and it seems like a broken and a human history. But if you, if you can tell it well, using good themes and stories and sort of keep it, keep that thread going through all of church history, you can't but stand amazed at God's faithfulness that here we are in 2023. Um, and we have a wealth of incredible resources at our fingertips that seems to be exploding. Like if you spend some time listening to other podcasts and reading books, uh, the riches of the Reformation that were rediscovered in those days and the riches of, of the New Testament of the gospel, uh, there's so much to grow and to learn. And, and that's the Old Testament to, to the Lord's faithfulness, not to our Dutchness, not to uh, you know our, our, our homeboys, if you will, but to, to God's faithfulness to the, to the churches and, and his his love for the the saints. And uh, in some ways, I think it's encouraging because it it can be difficult to live in our times, look at the world around us and say, how did we get here? But in some ways, the Lord set an antithesis to the enemy. He says, look, these are, this is one side and this is the other side. And it's never been more clear. And so the church should be the church and and believers should be believers and uh, live that way in the midst of the world. And that's, that's what God calls us to first and foremost. And church history gives us incredible examples of what that looks like yeah and be thankful for i mean i guess even what we have in the in the political sphere i mean we we get down on it a lot like wow look where the world's going look where our politicians are headed and we still have freedom and and we still have i mean a lot more than what i mean i can't i didn't know or couldn't imagine having a soldier in your house if you decided to separate from the church that's just not something that even enters my mind as it as a younger person growing up in the kingdom from church is like yeah. yeah. I mean, even, even if you were to split, it would just be, you know, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's got nothing to do with the government. So no. yeah, that's uh man, it's, it's been informative. I, I definitely want to uh, do some more reading on it and stuff. Um, do you have any books you mentioned uh, inheritance uh, uh, preserved? I know that's uh that's really in the weeds, yeah. I guess, in, in our, in our Canadian context, but. Yeah. I, I should have actually looked at this earlier. Um, like Reverend Camp and Reverend Eric Camp has a wonderful book, a survey of it, uh, sharing Abraham's blessings. He has one that that sort of does the whole thing. It doesn't get into the Dutch church history. So if you like the Dutch church history stuff, then like something like Inheritance Preserved is the way to go. There is a book out there called 1834 about Reverend de Kock. Uh, you can search that one. Uh, and there are other books that have been published over the years, but a lot of it is difficult to navigate. So I, I, I wouldn't say anybody's published a popular version yet. I'm not sure if that exists or could exist. Um, but right. 
if you do some Googling, most, most church websites will give you the rundown as well uh, for, for the overall scheme of things. And, and from there, you can find more articles here or there. Um, but in terms of uh, church history, there's, there's more and more books out there that are making it popular also for kids uh, to, to read that as well. Like uh, Simon at a car, uh, I think she's down from the United States. She's got a, a podcast going on church history um, and she writes a whole bunch of books. So if you do some Googling, it's not hard to find. And uh, it's just a good way to, to, to continue on appreciating what God has done for us. Yeah, man. Well, I appreciate it. Hopefully people found this informative. I, I've definitely learned a whole bunch things I didn't know. And uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to talk about. I, I mean, I'm, I'm only 30, but or I am 30, I guess. Depends on which way you look at it. Um, yeah, but I, I was talking to some of my friends who were, you know, similar age and they're like, well, I wouldn't have been interested in that like earlier on, but now they're starting, like, I start to feel old because I want to like learn about uh, church history and stuff. So hopefully this is, this is useful even for, you know, teenagers who are, you know, are you just wondering where we came from? And, and, uh, I'm sure you've touched on things that the older generation will be like, yeah, I remember that guy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, appreciate your time. Thanks, Mark. Uh, for all your expertise. I know you don't think you're an expert, but this was, uh, this was quite informative. So excellent. I, I enjoyed the opportunity. Hey, absolutely. So, uh, everybody, thanks for listening. Um, until next time, uh, keep having real talk. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of real talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.